Hello there, and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love, such as, for the person who is attempting to end the relationship, what would be helpful for them to keep in mind, or maybe some common mistakes that you've seen people make? Oh, that's what you're going to I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we are joined by Dr. Greg and Lisa Popchek, who run the Pastoral Solutions Institute, which is an organization dedicated to helping Catholics find faith filled solutions to tough marriage, family, and personal problems. They have co-authored over a dozen popular books, Integrating Solid Catholic Theology and Counseling Psychology, including For Better Forever, Holy Sex, Parenting with Grace, and Beyond the Birds and the Bees. Since 2001, they have also co-hosted several nationally syndicated radio advice programs, most recently the currently running More to Life. Greg and Lisa, thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So today we are talking a little bit about uh, resentment in the context of relationships, both with respect to uh, breakups in dating relationships and with respect to marriage. I think that once you get past the initial, you know, Twitter-pated falling in love phase, people just expect there to be resentment in relationships. It doesn't have to be that way, though. That's good news. Okay, yeah, that, then this will be a more uplifting conversation than I think it may appear at first. <laughs> <laughs> so putting aside instances of breakups due to abuse and cheating, because they deserve their own topic, which uh, our previous host, Sarah Perla, did an excellent job covering uh, domestic abuse all the way back in episode five. So if you're interested in that, uh, check out episode five. When somebody suspects that their boyfriend or girlfriend may want to end the relationship, uh, but they're still actually in the relationship, so that breakup hasn't actually taken place yet, what are some common problems they can run into other than, you know, actually getting dumped? <laughs> other than that? Well, you know, I, I think that, that it's, it's helpful for Christian couples to really understand what the whole point of relationships are in the first place. Generally speaking, people are just glad to have found somebody that, that they like and that likes them, and they just want to hold on for, for, for the rest of their lives then. You know, mission accomplished, that I found somebody that I feel decent around and seems, seems to like me well enough. And when that ends, or it looks like it's going to end, there's a lot of fear about, well, what if I can't ever find anybody ever again? You know, what if what if I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life? What if I'm, you know, a loser or something? You know, it, it, it's it's almost like a test of their identity. Having that more, I think, having the more Christian view of relationship is really important because I think it addresses a lot of those concerns. Not not so much the emotional impact of the breakup, but but it, it, it I think it enables people to approach it in a healthier way. Specifically, that the Christian idea of relationship is that we're supposed to be helping each other become more of the people God created us to be. We, we ought, I, I ought, if I'm in a healthy relationship, whether it's a healthy friendship or a healthy dating relationship or even a healthy marriage, I ought to be more inspired to be the kind of person God wants me to be because you're in my life than I do even when I'm on my own. Um, and so going into any relationship, you know, with that, that sense that I want to make sure that this is that kind of relationship, that when I'm with you, you, know, you inspire me or challenge me to be more of that person that God created me to be. And if that's not happening, then maybe this isn't a healthy relationship, or at least not the relationship that's best for, for me. And so if, if a couple is looking at breaking up, I think that that's what they need to be looking at. You know, not so much how does this person make me feel, or thank God I finally found a person, but rather 
what is the role this relationship or this person is playing in, in helping me be more of the person God is calling me to be? And what role am I playing in helping them becoming that person that God is calling them to be? Are they open to that even uh, in the first place? And I think that this goes back to the original question, which was, what if you suspect that your partner wants out of the relationship? How do you handle that? And I think this, this view of Christian relationship is so different than our um, just reactionary response to that. So it allows us to say, if this relationship, even in this tentative situation, or in what I'm suspecting is supposed to lead me to be more of what God called me to be and to live out the virtues he's called me to live out more strongly, more boldly, then what am I going to do in this situation? And, and the answer to that is that you're not going to just be reactive, twist yourself into a pretzel to try to be who that person wants you to be, um, fawn all over the place, panic and run. No, you're going to say, what virtues do I need? I need to bravely have the conversation about this. I have to be intelligent in my dealing with this and respectful and loving of that person instead of reactionary and throwing their clothes out the window. You know, there are all of these, these differences between what we see in romantic comedies as opposed to really living out the Christian view of this to say, how can I handle this in a way that brings me to the best of myself and maybe even allows me to take a step into, into strength or responsibility or better communication, even in the process of assessing where your partner is in that situation, we can bring this image of Christian relationship and what it's supposed to do for us, even to that first step. That's a good point. Yeah, it sounds like self-awareness is helpful to realize and maybe even anticipate some of the natural emotional reactions that might happen uh, when somebody is experiencing those kind of initial shocks. But like self-awareness up to a point, right? Because you still have to be kind of considering as a top priority what's best for the other person, even the other person who's in the act of breaking up with you. How can I still not obstruct them as they're still trying to attain the good, right? Well, yeah, because again, it goes back to those having some sense of what are those virtues that I, I, I'm called to live out or that I want to be known for, you know, I, I still need to live those out even when somebody is hurting me, um, even when, when somebody is, is disappointing me in some way. And I have to be able to step back um, from those emotional reactions, not, not entirely, but enough to be able to say all along, this whole relationship has supposed, is supposed to have been about pursuing our, our mutual good. And if at some point one or the other of us does not believe that this relationship is serving that purpose, we have to love each other enough to let each other go. You know, I think in some cases people might be tempted to think, well, we can only love each other if we're still in a relationship. But it sounds like what you're saying here is the act of letting the person go is more loving. Yeah, well, because the definition of, for, for Christians, the definition of love is working for the good of the other person. You know, I could feel more affection for somebody, or I could, or less affection for somebody. I can feel more or less passion for somebody. But if, but, but love is more than a feeling. Love is that that decision to work for the good of this other person. And so, you know, if I, if, if the most loving thing I can do is say I acknowledge this relationship isn't meeting their needs, then the loving thing to do is to let them go. But that allows you to assess what the most loving thing is. If that person is attempting to break up with you because they're 
just not willing to grow or they're feeling like they're being challenged and they're they're shying away from that but you really know them enough to say no they're just going through a hard time and if we really worked through this even with with a professional guide to help us through that it's worth working for this person's good to work through the hard time and really address their concerns and see if this relationship can be the best thing for each of us and what we're called to. Or if we can really see that this relationship isn't serving the purpose of that person, then we, we can assess, no, this is, this is a dating relationship that isn't right. And of course, we're talking about dating versus marriage. On the flip side, what would be helpful for the person who is attempting to end the relationship? What would be helpful for them to keep in mind or maybe some common mistakes that you've seen people make? Oh, <laughs> that's what you're going through. Don't, yeah, don't, don't, don't do, do it, it by, by text. text. Then don't, don't, ghost. Do, don't do it by text. No, no ghosting. That would be the other thing. I'm um, not sure your podcast is long enough to go <laughs> Don't do it this way because there's a lot of don't do it this way. I would say the, the flip side of the don'ts, don't make it all about you. Don't, don't, you know, wimp out by doing it by text or by email or something. Yeah. But it's about, you know, being respectful of the other person, being thoughtful about, you know, what it is that you feel like you need to grow toward that's not happening and what they need instead of blaming or being accusatory or trying to cause some kind of volcanic eruption so you feel good about the fact that you've broken up with somebody and you can justify it. It's really about being thoughtful and keeping that vision of what a Christian relationship is meant for in mind. Yeah, being able to say, look, you know, I really like you and I have strong feelings for you even, but I see that this is what you want out of life and I'm, and I'm not sure how I can support that or I can, how I can give you those things or, or these are the things that I want out of life and, and you seem to really struggle supporting those things or helping me get that. And I would never want to put you in a position where you know, I was asking you to give me things that you couldn't give me or where you were asking me for things that I, I couldn't do for you. And so you know, that's why I feel like I need to end this. It's not because I don't like you or that I don't care about you or you're a terrible person. It's that we want different things and I can still be your friend. I can still care about those things and support you in whatever way I can, but I can't build my life around those things. You know, and that's, and I think that that keeps in that perspective what the, what the call to, in Christian relationship really is. You know, again, to help each other become what God created each of you to be in this life and to get each other to heaven in the next. And, and you, you can be dating a perfectly healthy, wonderful person whose goals and needs just don't line up with yours. Uh, and that's okay. You frame the breakup in terms of that. You know, there are certain things that I need or want or, and that I can't provide or that you can't provide. And that's okay. And in case any of our listeners, presumably our male listeners, need it spelled out for them, do not just record that snippet and insert the specifics of your relationship where Greg and Lisa were doing the work for you. Yeah. <laughs> it has to be in your own words. If someone is in a dating relationship and discerning marriage, um, are there any indicators which can help distinguish instances of resentment which don't indicate a problem with the relationship that are just sort of normal in our fallen world from those instances of resentment that might indicate the couple doesn't have a sustainable love? 
Yeah, well, okay, so so I would say that, um, and one of the one of the points we make on the program on, on our radio program, is that that all the feelings, I mean, you know, feelings are neutral, but 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 God uses our feelings to to, to speak to us. He created our emotions, right? And so by bringing our emotions to Him, we can get a clearer sense of what the Holy Spirit's trying to say through those feelings. And so you know, even things like resentment, we bring those feelings to God and say, okay, Lord, how do you want me to respond to this feeling? And, and usually what, the, what resentment means is that there's, there's some kind of an emotional awareness. It may not have reached my, my brain yet, but I have an, at least an emotional awareness of a need that's not being met or a problem that's not being addressed. And so, the, the, so if I have that resentment, the, the best thing I can do with it is to sit in prayer and ask God to help me understand what is that need that this resentment is pointing to that's not being met. Or what is this problem that's not being addressed? And then ask God for the, the words to bring that up intentionally and consciously and, and be able to go to the other person and say, look, you know, here is this need that, that we, I would really like to us to look at. Or here is this problem that I keep bumping up against and I'm not sure how, how to get through it, but I need your help. And, and that's, I think, the healthy response to any level of resentment. What determines whether a relationship can survive or not is the response you get. If the other person gives you some version of, well, I didn't really see that, or I don't really experience that same need, but, you know, I respect you, so let's work on that. Or let's, you know, gosh, that's not really my thing, but you know what, I, I care about you, so if you'll be patient with me, I think I can, I, I want to try to address that with you. Those are good and healthy responses to raising that resentment. If you get, well, that's ridiculous, why would you want that? Or that's not me, or there's no way you can expect that from me, or you get even more, you know, antagonistic responses to that attempt to respond in a godly way to the resentment you feel, that's not a healthy relationship. And that's including the the classic age-old, if you loved me, you wouldn't ask me to change. Oof. Because, of course, Oof. that goes right back to the purpose of Christian relationship, which all is we all are changing and being more refined, so we're more like God and we're going to God together. So if, if somebody stonewalls you in that way, that's that's when you know, well, I don't think I can work with this person for the next 75 years of my life. Yeah, in the same way that conversion doesn't end with baptism, becoming attractive to the other person doesn't end with the first date. Yeah. Well, and, and again, you know, resentment is, is normal in any relationship. Resentment could be part of a healthy relationship. Uh, it, it, the, the, the presence of resentment doesn't determine the health or the, the, the disease of the relationship. It's the response you get when you try to address that resentment in a, in a godly and appropriate way that determines whether the relationship is healthy and sustainable or not. And that includes your own response. So if you're the kind of person who feels resentment and then just builds up a head of steam or holds on to your resentment, that's telling you that God wants you to work on your emotional maturity and your ability to, to handle and respond to what you're perceiving as an injustice. So it's about growing both inside yourself and in the relationship, because there will be moments of resentment throughout your relationship. Some may be caused by things going on in the actual relationship. Some may be going on because of something that's happening to us inside ourselves, inside our own thinking that really have nothing to do with our spouse, but we end up pinning it on our spouse and causing problems. So if I've been with the kids all day long, and I'm going to talk about this in marriage for just a second, because when you're dating, you need an eye toward marriage, right? So it's a skill that's necessary. If I've been with the kids all day, I've been taking care of the house, I've been doing my part-time job, I've made dinner, 
my spouse comes home and doesn't either throw me a parade for all that I've done, or I've just been so exhausted that it has nothing to do with their response. And I feel resentful. I'm telling myself they don't care. They don't notice. They don't pull their weight. They may pull their weight all the time. They may be a wonderful spouse, but there's something inside of me that feels off that day. I'm going to blame them. That's not resentment in the marriage. That's our own emotional maturity. And when we can learn to take that to the other person and say, I'm sort of feeling this way. Can you help me come up with an answer for myself and together so that we can heal what's going on with me, address it and grow a little bit more together? That's how you get past those moments in a marriage. Back it up to dating. And if you're practicing negotiating that way, and dealing with your emotions that way, you're going to know whether this is something that you both have the skills to do in a marriage relationship as well. Well, and that's why in either context, bring whatever your feelings are, especially resentment, to God first mm -hmm. and saying, okay, Lord, you know, I'm feeling resentful. Help me understand what this is about, what you're trying to say to me through this, and give me the words to express it in a way that will glorify you, work for the good of the other person, and help me be my best self. And if you can do that, then, you, then you'll have a healthy relationship with your own resentment. And I think that goes to, we can't, we can't possibly talk about Christian dating or Christian marriage without saying that the first part of that is Christian. You need to be developing your own relationship with God, your own dialogue and, and talking relationship with God, where you are bringing everything to him first, that you're not making this this person in your dating relationship or your future spouse your idol but you're saying both of us are going to be in relationship with god and taking ourselves and our relationship to him first and if you want to hear more about dating check out episodes 29 to 31 where sarah did a whole arc covering different aspects of dating in our next episode, we will continue with the pop checks and turn our discussion towards marriage. But right now, it is movie time once again. And as always, we are joined by Kara. Hello there, Kara. Hey there, good friend. And today we are talking about Soul, a movie that came out in 2020, directed by Pete Docter and Kemp Powers, and was released by Disney Pixar uh, during the pandemic and therefore released to Disney Plus and not in theaters. But we've both uh, seen this movie recently. And uh, we are ready to uh, talk about it. And who boy, is there a lot to talk about <laughs> with respect to the call to love? It's funny. I know you had mentioned this a while back uh, to try to talk about just because obviously the name being a very clever double meaning between both like the soul of music and jazz. And then also it is literally about souls. And you're like, they're clearly stepping on our turf. We need to talk about it. And it's really funny because my initial impression, I was like immediately put off by one of the main premises of the movie, which is the pre-existence of souls. But I, I felt like it gets into a pretty philosophical state pretty quickly in the sense that it's really talking about the idea of what are we made for? And I feel like as Catholics, like we know that answer. And yet we still kind of grapple with it on a day-to-day -day basis as, you know, human beings and sort of that conversation that we know we're having with God about our lives that all humans are having all the time. And I thought that this was a really 
salient way of having that conversation, even if I disagree with some of the like finer points on how they want to go about explaining it. Yeah, we could almost structure this episode like a question from Aquinas's Summa. It seems that humans <laughs> are not only made for love. Objection one. Objection two. <laughs> Can I, where, where's the nerd emoji? How do I push that on audio? <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get you a soundboard with, uh, with a few different options. But this movie has a lot to say about what people are made for. It's not all lovey-dovey, and it's not all, well, whatever you think. You know, it's up to you. It delves into that territory, and we'll talk more about that. But it also does have some very specific ideas about what people are made for that they've really devoted a lot of thought to, and certainly a lot more thought than the vast majority of movies and the vast majority of animated movies, for that matter. Yeah, totally. I was, I mean, I think this is a sort of hallmark of Pixar. They frequently are treading on sort of philosophical ground in a movie that ostensibly is made for children which I think is an interesting choice that, first of all, they're not treating children like they're infants. They actually are acknowledging that like kids have real questions about the kinds of things that actually goes beyond what am I going to be when I grow up. I think kids do have a sense of like, what am I made for? What am I supposed to do? Well, at the same time, it's also like clearly extremely salient for adults who probably identify with the you know, quote unquote, young, but clearly very old soul of um, the character 22, which is, we'll get to kind of the setup, but I thought it was interesting that 22 is basically like a middle-aged woman who is really dissatisfied with her life playing Sudoku and, you know, doesn't even want to do anything. But like, it's such a perfect connection for adults who actually see a lot of themselves and their own dissatisfaction with life in 22, who, you know, theoretically, like hasn't even experienced life yet. It's funny that they turn to a disembodied soul to keep the movie grounded, but they do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, and, and Pixar has always been concerned with heavy themes and not shielding kids or sugarcoating like a lot of the heavy aspects of life from kids. But what's been specific about Pixar's more recent approach, especially with Inside Out and Coco, Pixar recently has been concerned with the philosophical dimension and the existential dimension of human life, mm. way more so than other animated movies, but even more than Pixar's previous well-received movies. And this movie, whether or not it's go it serves as a kind of companion piece to Inside Out and Coco, but that's definitely how it's been received initially, is that they're both concerned to help kids visualize and to articulate concepts that are usually regarded as over kids' heads or yeah, boring for kids. Definitely. And this this movie's trying to change that. And in that sense they should they should be applauded for that. And in that sense they give us a lot to talk about <laughs> because they're certainly concerned with what people are made for. So, uh Kara, what were your uh, what were your initial impressions of this movie when you first saw it? So, I think I have to lead with the fact that I lived in New York City for 10 years and I have like my first and only love for a city is New York. So this is like the perfect homage to all that is like wonderful and terrible about New York. Uh, so that was like, first off the top, just loved it. I loved all the little jokes too about how like 22 basically is the reason why the Knicks have sucked for the last 10 years. And that was amazing. It was so good. It was just like little things. The one character is like, oh, I'm standing at the corner of 14th and 7th Avenue, which like 14th Street is sort of quintessentially like absolute 
chaos and like of course there's a guy spinning a sign on the corner on 14th street probably for some like dollar slice place it's just like so so well done and all the new york stuff but um the second thing was that i've now watched it twice and i cried both times which i think just speaks to you know pixar's storytelling i think that the whole idea of really discovering what you're made for and the i think the overarching story arc of discovering that the thing that you have been really focused on or thought was your thing maybe isn't what you thought it was. I just feel like it really tugged at my heartstrings and especially the relationship between the main character who is Joe Gardner and the, you know, pre-disembodied soul of 22 and their relationship. I just think, you know, Pixar is so good at that human relationship and the idea of finding yourself and your relationship to others. We can get more into the details of that, but you know, I just think that they did a really amazing job of sort of highlighting the things that make life worth living are not the big moments. It's the dinner with friends on the corner. It's going to a jazz show and enjoying it for what it is. And things that I think are are maybe like a little bit trite, but I thought that they did a nice job of sort of highlighting the sort of small beauty in the world. Absolutely. I totally agree. We can talk more about that later in our uh, spoiler section. But that sort of mature kind of ethical take on life Mm -hmm. and how to view it is the real driving force behind this movie and the the primary source of conflict. Um, And it's very well done in a way that very few movies, animated or live action, are able to do. Another thing If you do get the kids to pay attention to the themes in this movie, it's very good for giving them some sort of vocabulary to start to talk about existential philosophical themes, which again is not something that movies are typically known for, especially kids' movies. Uh, So for that reason, as a starting point, it's great. I don't think it quite personally resonated with me as much, even though it had a lot to say about my own life and career story. (laughs) Um, I felt like I had a lot in common with Joe, the main character voiced by Jamie Foxx. But I don't know, for some reason, it just didn't quite have the heft. Well, I think part of the problem, too, is that, like, Joe is a genuinely annoying character. He is. (laughs) I mean, that's part of... I mean, I think that's part of the character development is that he is sort of self-absorbed and narcissistic. But at the same time, it makes him a really annoying character. Like, dude, like, seriously, get out of your own way. It's very frustrating. (laughs) (laughs) Joe is very flawed compared to a lot of other Pixar protagonists. You know, every, every main character in a movie has something they need to work on unless they're like Forrest Gump. Yeah. In that spectrum, though... Joe is so self-centered. He does not care about anybody else in his life. Early on, when he is interacting with the other, like, baby souls, he doesn't think twice about using them and, like, discarding these people. Yeah. In order to get back to his life on Earth, even though he has seen, the like, the beginning of the afterlife and his paradigm has should be changed, you would think. Now he's still like, oh, nope, sorry, thanks, thanks for this ticket back to Earth, kid. Bye. Yes, totally. because he because he prioritizes his passion in life so much. So yeah, that's that's very interesting. Also, that the movie asks you to identify with a guy whose flaws are so evident. And that's like, I mean, I think it's a a driving force of the action is kind of him realizing that he was wrong. Uh, and we can get into some of the specifics of it in our more spoiler heavy section. But 
I I thought it was really interesting that that's like clearly part of the character like it doesn't really work if he was like a better guy or at least like the way that they've set up the movie but it makes him really hard to identify with and like in some ways to root for I kind of was like I wasn't really rooting for him through the whole thing I was rooting for 22 I wasn't necessarily rooting for for Joe you know I was rooting for Dorothea Williams but in order to talk more about her and her jazz quartet, I think we have to move to our spoiler section. So from here on out, blanket spoiler warning. Uh, if you have not seen the movie, go watch it and come back and listen to the second half of the episode where we really dive in. Yeah, just one other little theme I wanted to pick up on was just the fact that especially living in a really Catholic community and having a lot of friends who are Catholic, I felt a lot of parallels to the idea that you can get sort of tripped up on the theme of figuring out what God's plan is for you. And even just people's sort of obsession with vocation and whether you, you know, people getting into this, I have a vocation to marriage, so why haven't I found my spouse yet? Or I have a vocation to the priesthood, but I can't seem to like get myself to enter a seminary. Waiting for God to give you the opportunity for that thing that you really want without actually having the conversation with him about, is this what I really want? Uh, And I think that the way that that sort of unfolds in the movie has some good parallels for us in terms of like not knowing exactly what you want and the fact that God doesn't always give you all the information up front. You know, it's kind of that life unfolds and we should always be in prayerful conversation with God about what to do next. But to become sort of single-mindedly obsessed with something, maybe missing some of the other cues that he's giving us about things that he wants us to do in life. And to your point, Kara, I think a Catholic reading that has that relational dimension to it, where the individual isn't just kind of searching on their own as they are in this movie, as it shows up on screen, but the individual is always searching and being searched out by God. That Mm -hmm. kind of relational element would help this movie make that point more clearly than it does, I think, Mm. because Joe doesn't have a prayer life to speak of. There is no personified character who represents God, even though there are metaphysical beings that are other than human. There's no God figure that Joe is in relationship, either explicitly or implicitly. And therefore, there's no there's no sense that what makes Joe happy has been given to him by a thinking and willing being. Mm. It's just kind of there, and he has to find it. Mm-hmm. But to what you're saying, you can't just simplistically say, I'm a pianist, and this is my meaning in life, if that's a received thing from a God who loves you. Because God may want that for you at a certain time, but that may only be a step along the way, And it may be in conjunction or subservient to other aspects of your life. And these are all things that are part of a much harder to discern designed plan from a real God who is a designer of vocation. Mm -hmm. And and discerning that is a lifelong process. Here, I think they want to say that deep down, but it's hard for them to say that because they they can't put God in, right? They have to market this to a secular audience and they can't say, okay, well, Joe, you know, God really spoke to you and revealed some beauty to you through the piano, but God relates to people in a lot of different ways. They can't say that. Yeah. Well, I think they do a good job at the end of kind of saying your spark is not your purpose in life. It's sort of, you know, giving a nod to that thing of like, 
I mean, the, the movie is sort of grappling with the idea of what is your purpose, and it never really answers it. It sort of gives, it just gives a little hint of maybe the obsession with my purpose isn't the purpose without ever actually answering it. And I think as a Catholic, I find that unsatisfactory, but also that's because I know that the only answer is like, we are made in his image and likeness to know and to love him and you know do his will. So like, if you can't have that fullness, it's always going to feel a little bit lacking. Although I think it's probably a more satisfactory answer than a lot of what you get in the culture today, which is find your purpose, find your, you know, whatever spark and all that. I feel like it's, it's a refreshing contradiction to a lot of the messaging that we get in pop culture today. Right. And that sort of construct your own meaning idea mm. is sort of present. And I think this movie could be interpreted as dismissing the notion of a meaning of life altogether. When that, that angel at, or that angel or that, <laughs> that figure that Jerry at the end says, oh, you human beings, you're so silly thinking that your spark is your meaning. You know, ideas like the meaning of life are really silly. I think what they're on guard against here, their primary concern isn't determining whether objectively human life has a meaning. Their concern is the harmful impact it can have when you take your spark, the thing you're passionate about, and you conclude that that's the meaning of your life or that that's the meaning of life in general. Mm. And sort of to jump to that conclusion, because they show the harmful effect of that line of thinking in how Joe, when he's mistaken, communicates with 22. And it mm. contributes to 22's feelings of inadequacy, because Joe's over here saying, music is my spark, and therefore my life has meaning. The, the implication is, you don't have a spark, your life doesn't have meaning. And the yeah. movie wants to push back on this because a lot of people struggle with that sort of thing. And they shouldn't be made to feel like they're worthless just because they're they're not as passionate about anything the way Beethoven was about music. Or, uh, controversially, the way Mother T St. Teresa of Calcutta is about, uh, I don't know, helping people, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Put that in my firm dislike category, for sure. Caution, this movie does drag St. Teresa of Calcutta uh, into it as one of the kind of inspirational historical figures without mentioning Jesus, of course. If, if you watch it with your kids, uh, you may need to tell them like, hey, this is a portrayal of a really important person who is a great model of the faith, and this is not the best portrayal of her. Something along those lines, <laughs> because, you know, she only shows up for about 10 seconds total. And I was like, of all people, of all people, come on. <laughs> And then, so one thing that's interesting, the reason she and uh, Carl Jung and Muhammad Ali and a few others are there is to show that, okay, a lot of these people, when they're in between life and death, have tried to help 22 find her place so she can enter life on Earth. And they all fail. You know, these are the, the best and brightest of, you know, in human history. And what she really needed was Joe all along. But at the end, these characters come back as a sort of shadowy representation in 22's psyche as sort of negative voices telling her that she's worthless because she's not she's not good at anything she's not passionate about anything it contributes to that mistake that joe is making of assuming that the spark in someone's life has to be their meaning or their purpose in life as well and that's that's where the movie really shines because all of that criticism of the overemphasis on your individual passion all that criticism is actually going somewhere. They're trying to show positively what really does make life worth living, which 22 eventually discovers at the end 
and then Joe reminds her of. And there's a quote from the filmmaker, from uh, Pete Docter, um, and I'm just going to read this from the IMDb trivia. Pixar chose to portray the film's main character as a musician because they wanted a profession the audience could root for. Pete Docter described Soul as an exploration of where should your focus be? What are the things that, at the end of the day, are really going to be the important things that you look back on and go, I spent a worthy amount of my limited time on Earth worrying or focused on that. So that's the quote from uh, from Pixar, and that's their top priority here. They're not just trying to say, don't be so fixated on your individual passion. They're trying to answer this question, where should your focus be? At the end of the day, where they arrive is not really a bad answer. I don't mm-hmm. think it's necessarily a complete answer, but it's not a bad starting point, which is to exist in an intentional way and to recognize the beauty in the smallest aspect of creation. They wouldn't say creation, but of your existence, which I find when it's contrasted with with greatness, as it's culturally understood, is kind of a nice, mostly secular representation of St. Therese's little way. Mm. This this regular old living, which at first Joe dismisses like yeah yeah it's whatever that's you know we do this every day it's not a big deal that's not what this is all about it's just life it's just life which he eventually comes around to in the end is a good starting place it shows that even the smallest moments in life are still big enough to make life meaningful Mm -hmm. yeah i agree i think that's i think you're right that that's definitely where the movie shines so yeah, uh, that's that's the main thrust of the movie. But the movie has a lot more to say, especially so we can get into some uh, some likes and dislikes here. So okay, we need to take a few minutes to talk about the body soul metaphysics of this because that is probably where the movie runs most afoul of Catholic thought. It's not the primary concern of the movie, uh, so I think you know this movie can still get a pass, but we do still need to address it. If you have trouble. Uh, explaining the concept of immateriality to your kids or maybe your students or maybe yourself. Uh, There is a really great talk from the Thomistic Institute uh, by a professor from Notre Dame's philosophy department. Her name is Therese Scarpelli-Cori, and she did a talk a year or two ago called What is Immateriality? It's very heady, but also very accessible. It's in the show notes. I totally recommend you check it out. She's going to do a way better job than either of us will about explaining what we mean by immateriality and what we don't mean. One thing she talks about is something called the spooky body idea, which is not new, uh, but shows up in this movie where anytime someone's a ghost or a disembodied soul, they look something like themselves, except they can walk through walls um, and they have some senses, but not others. Uh, 22 says early in the movie, you can't feel or taste. And yet somehow she says this with a mouth that is audible, and she says this to a guy she can see. So for some reason, some of the senses in the great before work, but not others. This is all, you know, an issue with the spooky body idea. Um, And this movie is not really concerned with solving it. It's sort of using that as a means to an end. But it's still a very visible part of the movie. So we do still need to deal with it. And it's, hey, it's the title of the movie, Soul. So we need to we need to talk about it, Kara. And where it falls short. Well, I'll I'll just say my biggest issue with it was like I think that all that stuff was a little bit of of trope that I didn't mind nearly so much as the concept of the pre existence of souls, which you know BT dubs that was like a thing that the church sort of solved in what I think it was like the Council of Constantinople 
the first or second one or something like that. Like this was actually like a thing that was debated. You know, there were church fathers who believed in the pre-existence of souls, but that has been definitively decided and that is like not a thing. So that was like my first one. <laughs> Kara, are you saying the church has thought about and maybe even solved questions that people nowadays think they're just coming up with for the first time? I know, it's shocking. It's amazing. I, really, the, I mean, not to write my love letter to Catholicism, but that is the thing I come back to all the time. I'm like, people have already thought about this. It's already done. I, I, I'm not that smart. It's okay. <laughs> one thing I thought about that was interesting about the preexistence of souls in this one is that they weren't eternal or even coming from a previous life. They say up front, these are new souls. Mm, that's true, yeah. Sort of... and they're, but they're like generated. I was unclear as to the source of the new souls. Thankfully, this movie does not get into where souls come from or where they go. They actually portray there. they portray the great beyond in a really interesting way where you start out in the stars and then the stars get denser and denser and eventually it's just this one big white ball, which is sort of just playing on the idea of the light at the end of the tunnel. And then mm -hmm. once they get there, they just sort of blink out like mosquitoes hitting the mosquito <laughs> lamp. <laughs> I was a little disturbed by that. I was like, are they like being subsumed or are they like <laughs> gone? <laughs> Yeah, and thankfully the movie is not really concerned with that. They just needed something there to confront yeah. the, the main character to make this a very real consideration without going into a whole lot of detail. All we see of uh, transcendent reality is still temporary. It's not understood mm -hmm. to be eternal. Um, and so in, in that sense, they're sort of limiting their claims and they're being modest about what they're what they're showing. But at the same time, they're still showing a spooky body coming out of a regular body and either being pulled out by force or separating and going to the great before or the great beyond. And that is not what we mean by soul. If it was, we would be two things, not just one thing. We would be a thing, which was a soul, and another thing, which is a body. And sometimes they can be in the same place but there's still two things. If we were to follow this movie and many others to like their logical conclusions, that's not what we mean. The human person is one thing with two principles. But I think, I think that's actually an insightful reality of the way that most people do think today. You know, I would say that like dualism is rampant and dualism being the idea that you have a body and a soul and that they are at times coexisting in the same place, but they are sort of separate and at times even, you know, in in conflict with each other. That's a very common sort of like puritanical idea that, you know, like your body is bad. Like Catholics do not believe that the body is bad. And we don't believe that they you know, you are one body and soul, even though obviously your your body is here when you pass away and you're no longer alive. But we don't we just don't see it in the same kind of separation and i feel like this movie is less prescriptive and more descriptive of what the way that people today actually see you know the body and the soul being separate absolutely i yeah i don't think this movie is trying to make an argument for that way of thinking it's trying to address an existing idea that people have and saying, well, okay, what if this happened in that sort of paradigm? Yeah. No, so that, that's a good point. This movie isn't necessarily endorsing dualism. At one point, 22 describes herself as a hypothetical construct. <laughs> uh, 
So it's, yeah, they're they're sort of winking at that notion a little bit, and it's not even strictly dualist because when Twenty Two Soul inhabits Joe's body, she gets a better sense of what it's like to live, and it suggests mm. that in order to really appreciate life, you need both together. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be better if you were a disembodied soul like Socrates or maybe even Descartes indicated. It's not as if this is a fleshy prison. Quite the contrary, even according to this movie embodied existence is a good thing it's good to have pizza it you know it uses food as sort of a particularly concrete point of departure to try and convince this creature from the beyond that like physical existence is a good desirable thing food is is so concrete this actually isn't the first movie to do that it this is just like in meet joe black a movie that came out a few decades ago where the literal angel of death inhabits brad pitt's body and it becomes obsessed with the with peanut butter. And that's like where death starts to appreciate life on Earth and learns how to enjoy life from Anthony Hopkins. It's the same thing here, except that Tina Fey is not the angel of death. I heartily I heartily endorse both the appreciation of peanut butter and pizza. So they're both <laughs> on to something. Food really cuts through a lot of the abstractions. Yeah. And the experience of that culminates in what comes to symbolize the enjoyment of life or living intentionally, or however you want to phrase it, where this little, I had to look up what these things are called, but they're they're like a propeller, and they fall out of trees, uh, and they kind of fly around for a while. Uh, I don't know what they're called. Apparently, they're called a bunch of different things, either helicopter seeds, or maple seeds, or whirly gigs. That feels very regional. Or spinning jennies, uh, (laughs) if you're from northern England. We'll put a link to this thing in the show notes so you know what we're talking about. It becomes a symbol of enjoying the little things in life as a gift within which a soul can still experience meaning, which has meaning within it. And this couldn't exist without the body. And has to do with what uh, we were talking about with Father Conrad Murphy a few episodes ago when we were discussing the sacraments in the body, about how human beings, in order to experience love, need to do so in an outward way. Mm. These characters, in order to experience existence and enjoy it, need to do so in an outward way, and they use this maple seed as a kind of symbol of that, a kind of outward sign of an inward reality even. And that is what is used in the climax of the movie to kind of talk 22 off the ledge and prevent her from becoming a lost soul. So this movie is certainly engaged with body-soul questions, but there are aspects of it that do escape the typical dualist dichotomy of a strict divide between matter and form. Mm. Kind of on that embodied note, a lot of their movies have some sort of particular milieu or specialty. So, for example, Finding Nemo is concerned with the ocean. Ratatouille is concerned with cooking. This movie is concerned with jazz, where it uses jazz to make its deeper point. Mm. And they don't just say, okay, we're going to make a movie that happens to be about a jazz musician. We're going to animate a couple of sequences and we're going to forget about it. Like they did with the ocean or with cooking or with any of these other kind of specialties, they put so much care and detail into authentically presenting what this thing is as soon as they started playing jazz music as soon as dorothea williams shows up there's such a level of detail put into how these things are animated Mm. they actually animated the correct notes on the keys of the piano that joe was playing which is not a picnic 
uh, if you're an animator and they didn't have to do it because I wouldn't have noticed if they hadn't. I just read that in the trivia, but they went the extra mile to make it look like it really looks in real life because the more they do that, the more they help you kind of fall in love or develop an interest with that thing in real life and develop an appreciation for it. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. I also had a note about how incredible the animation was on Dorothea Williams in particular and the sort of climactic jazz scene. Absolutely. Just like the body motions. And you know, my fiance is an animator and an illustrator, and I've watched him work a week on 60 seconds of far more simple kind of animation. And it just blows my mind the amount of care. If you think about somebody playing jazz and the amount of like back and forth and up and down and like this Dorothea Williams character is clearly a very famous jazz saxophone player. And just like the movements that they had were utterly realistic. It almost felt as though they had a video of a real person underlying the animation because it was just incredible the amount of detail to the motion that was being made and you're right like how could they have chosen something more difficult than jazz and the way they personify dorothea williams as sort of this hardened cynical but still Mm. like deep down very passionate musician the way she frustratedly gestures to joe when it's his turn to take a solo like at first, before she sees that he, that he has chops. It's such a an effective way of saying, this is a person who is excellent at what they do, who has to deal with people who are not excellent at what they do. Oh, totally. And what it does is it helps you be a little bit as passionate about this thing as Joe is. And that's where the, the animation and the storytelling really come together. And both really work together because the animation is an outward way of saying, this guy's concerns really do matter. Because you can see those concerns, too. Mm -hmm. And that makes it way more compelling down the line when he has to sort of grapple with how passionate he is about jazz versus what's more important in life. So, yeah, it all it all kind of works together in a really interesting way. I also, I mean, to that point about his realization, so he comes out from the jazz club after playing. He's just absolutely crushed it. She comes out to meet him on the sidewalk and says to him, you don't get nights like this very often as a professional musician. This was transcendent, almost like the best that you'll ever feel playing. And I I both appreciated that from a storytelling aspect as just like signaling and also this great little realization in Joe of I got the thing I wanted most and that was it. And his sort of turn on that, I just thought was so well done and you know just to the whole point of the entire movie about like you're striving and i think a lot of people who are striving for excellence and reach it kind of that feeling of oh this isn't what i thought it would be and i was putting too much stock in it is just such a true feeling sometimes when you hold something up on a pedestal it can never achieve the heights that it had in your mind in terms of the way you thought you would feel about it That's an excellent point. And I think that's a good place to wrap up. It's the same notion that is a very prominent theme in Catholicism, that no created good is enough to completely satisfy us. And it Mm -hmm. goes back to St. Augustine in the Confessions. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. That's a Disney movie. (laughs) Amen. Kara, I think we could probably keep talking about soul for a long time. And um, hey, maybe we'll return to it one day. But we have to leave it there. So uh, thank you again for joining us. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. 
And if you're looking for more coverage of the movie Soul, our sister site, For Your Marriage, published a blog post covering it a couple of months ago, so be sure to check out the link for that also in the episode notes. Please share this podcast with your friends. Check out our website and social links also in the episode notes. Leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks to Alejandro Del Pozo for the use of our theme music and to Fulton Sheen for our sign-off. Bye now, have a blessed Holy Week, and God love you. Thank you.